Hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I'm your host, naturalist and educator with Crow's Path, Professor Iwigi, and I am joined by Christine Fleener, Dr. Christine Fleener. Welcome yeah, back. It's, it's, thank you. Always got to respect the honorific. <laughs> respect yes, the respect honor. the honorific. Yes, and that other voice chiming in is my good friend and uh, I guess sort of uh, support in my endeavor to run far and fast, Glenn Etter, who is the president and chief scrubber over at Rubber Baby Bunyan Scrubbers. <laughs> That's right. Chief scrubber, not just a, one of the <clears throat> menial scrubbers. Yeah, one of the scrub scrubbers, we call them. <laughs> Well, <laughs> she scrub. Well, it's as many words in our English language. It has multiple meanings, right? So I'm a rubber baby bunion scrubber, which means <laughs> I ru- um, ru- any rubber babies that develop bunions, I'll scrub those off. Any um, babies that develop rubber bunions, I'll scrub those off. I have a personality that's a bit like rubber. So if I'm scrubbing a bunion and someone insults me, I'll let that bounce off me. And then I use rubber. Uh, baby rubber, which is uh, the softest and gentlest kind of rubber, to rub bunions off of anyone, including professional elite athletes like yourself. And what if a bunion has a rubber baby? Do you scrub that off? <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. basically anything Obviously. that could fit There's into the title. Though. Yeah, anything that you could make fit into my title, I will do. and I, Or I will get, specifically, I'll get one of the scrubbers to do. Does the majority of your clientele suffer from Benjamin Button's disease? Is that how they have bunions as babies? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, no, well, we have a lot of very active babies, and yeah, we do have some that are aging backwards and have developed bunions over the course of their long backwards lifetime. I should also remind listeners that this is yet another failed endeavor of, of Glenn, so <laughs> well, it might not, not actually be okay, a clientele. Failed? Is, that is brutal. We have, I have seven clients so far. Most of them are rubber babies that I found in, <laughs> in a dumpster, <laughs> but they pay me in love. Failed. That is a harsh word, Teague. I Sorry, don't think we I'll should. I think we should say still, still improving. Yeah, still, you're a successful multi. Still developing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, maybe a, a good segue into our topic of tonight, which is failure. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, this is the the culminating episode in our short little series on endurance, in which we're gonna recap my experience out in Milwaukee at the six days in the dome race, where I was going after the world record. Uh, in the 100-mile run. I was doing it barefoot. I was thinking about bunions because I do have bunions, as most runners do, and you do develop them over age because running shoes, which kind of look like elf shoes where they're super pointy at the front, and they pinch your feet, and because there's constant contact, so every time you're running, you're getting this pressure put on your the outside of your toes, and a lot of runners develop bunions from running in these little shoes, which I don't wear. I mostly rate, run barefoot. So, But you still have bunions? But That's I have them from wrong. a kid because I spent many, many oh. decades and thousands of miles running in little elf shoes. Um, so I thought what we could do is just, you know, over the, the first three episodes, what we're doing is talking about uh, what endurance is and then talking about the physical and then the mental side of it. And then putting that to practice, that was sort of the culminating experience was going out and running this 100 miler. And so I thought I could give maybe a brief recap of the race and talk about some of my strategy and maybe potentially where things went wrong. And as you guys have questions, feel free to chime in. Oh, yeah. No, we invited a lot of press here because they're going to have lots of questions for you. So you just oh, great. You start whenever you want. Okay, great. Yes. Well, when you're ready for um, questions. 
Please use the raise hand function on Zoom mm. if you have any questions, and then we will call on you. I believe Glenn will be monitoring that. Right, and we would ask you to respect the honorific and address your questions to Professor Iwigi. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Right. Yeah. By the way, quick research, Professor. Bunyan comes from the word Old French bunyan, meaning bump on the head. It was originally meaning a bump on the head, and then it got demoted to the oh, feet. Interesting. This is a podcast, so this is probably not yeah the best form for sharing this. But if you look at my forehead, I actually have topography on my forehead from repeatedly banging my head against things when I was younger. And I actually have like a little protrusion on my forehead, a little unicorn wow. knob. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> but it's the same a, thing, like repeated trauma. full unicorn horn. <laughs> no wonder you have bunions. Really <laughs> yeah. So just leading up to the race, I talked a little bit about my training and going into the race as I do for any race that I'm peaking for, which this race I was definitely peaking for, starting two to three weeks out, I'll do a taper. And I had peaked my mileage around 152 or three miles in a week. And which so is right six marathons, that, just so people know. He was running six marathons a week. <laughs> yeah, 20, willikers. 21 miles a day. And... I was exhausted at the end of that. So I started tapering about three weeks out. So I dropped my mileage the three weeks out to about 90. And then I think the next week, maybe I was at 70. And then the week of the race, I was running five to seven miles a day. And so I was taking it progressively easier and easier. And one of the worries is because as you're, you know, running around a track, you're carrying weight. And so you often have the same appetite leading up to the race as you would as you as when you're in full training mode and so it was this constant struggle not to just eat a ton of food at every meal there's uh meb kaflevsky who's one of the greatest american marathoners of all time he said that before his marathons during that taper period he would drink 32 ounces of water before dinner so that he would go to dinner already totally full and then <laughs> he wouldn't eat as much food so I was just like conscious of that and trying to make sure that I slept enough and did not eat too much. And then, yeah, the I don't know if that's interesting at all to talk about the taper, but the day of the race, the race started at 9 a.m. And so usually before a marathon or shorter, I'll go out and I'll run about 10 minutes, four hours before a race. So often with marathons, they start at 8, 9 in the morning. So I'll get up at 4 or 5 and just do a little shakeout run and something Coach Hall, Chris Hall at the University of Chicago, uh, right. indoctrinated in all of us. So, yeah, I did not do that because I was going to be running 50 miles. I did not need a shakeout run for it. Yeah, and the race itself was pretty uneventful. Well, I guess, do you guys have any questions? I don't want to just maybe talk my way. Well, we're just, I think, I literally glued to my seat, which is unrelated. I left some glue on my seat. But <laughs> I'm interested in what actually happened. Yeah, that's what I want to hear. Okay. Well, actually, uh, yeah, I know I have I have a question. My name is uh, Mr. G Gobbler from Chicken Run Times, and <laughs> I was curious. You said you tapered in food, but have you still been eating just as many mashed potatoes? Thank you. <laughs> that's a great question, Mr. Gobbler. I so I used to do a diet. Please, this is Mr. Something... Gobbler was my father. You could call me Gobby. Mr. Gobbler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I used to do uh, uh, Matt Fitzgerald, who I, I love Matt Fitzgerald's stuff because he's uh, a professed agnostic about everything. And so whenever there's a fad, whether 
it's a like a paleo diet or barefoot running or anything like that. He is always like the average of everything is probably right. So as long as you're not doing something extreme, your training is probably good. Um, but he has a, a fat taper diet. And so I used to do this for marathons where starting about 14 days before the race, I would switch from a carb-rich diet to a fat-rich diet. And so I'd get the vast majority of my calories from fat. And what you're doing is you're depleting your body of a constant replenishing source of glycogen or glucose storage. And you're transitioning to burning more fat during that period. But the ultimate goal is to starve your body of glycogen stores. And then starting three days before the race, you do a, a carb load. And the idea is for a marathon where you're running all out for two, two and a half hours at the elite end for men and women too, then what you do is your body then soaks up all of this glycogen and stores more than it does uh, on an average day. And that makes sense for the marathon because you're just barely eking by on your glycogen stores. But I was thinking about for an ultra marathon, it actually shouldn't matter at all what you eat leading up to the race because you don't need a carb load. The marathon, I think, is the only race that makes sense to carb load on. For 5K, don't eat a carb load the night before, day before, or two days before. It doesn't matter. And so with the ultra, I was like, well, you're going to run out of glycogen definitely like that's just a given and the idea isn't to like stave off when that happens the idea is to train your body to be efficient at handling the transition to primary primarily getting energy from fat metabolism um so uh for the carb load i I didn't do anything special i didn't change my diet at all Uh, i didn't worry about that and i wasn't packing on calories at all and actually during the race i never once felt like my energy levels were low Uh, and we'll get into this a little bit more but the biggest limiting factor for me was just the impact on my legs that really felt like what sort of did me in but great question no problem (laughs) the structure of the race is is pretty wild they have two different segments for the race. The first is a 48-hour segment, and then actually while we're recording this, people are on day two of a six-day race in this dome where you just run as far as you possibly can in six days. Uh, but the first section is a 48 uh, Question? Yes. Grumpy old man here. Uh, what the hell? Six days, and then what if you need to sleep? Do you just sleep on the track? And then what if somebody runs over you? And then like, does that count as an obstacle? Are you penalized if you fall asleep on the track? <laughs> yeah. On the sixth day, not your race. Cause this six day thing is just fascinating to me. What the heck? Great question. Grumple Stiltskin. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the six day, you can do anything as long as you, if you leave the track, anything you have to enter at the, that seems uh, pretty wide open. Like you can take a motorcycle <laughs> out there. And... <laughs> yeah, you can do that. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, okay, then be up. accurate. <laughs> yeah. Anything within reason? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, with those races, kind of the cool thing that I like about some of these really bizarre, uncharted territory type races is that there's no template for how you do it. In a marathon, it's it's pretty clear you want to run a relatively even pace and eat maybe every 20 to 35 minutes or so and take in 100, 200 
calories in each of those feeding sessions, I guess. With something like this, there's no real, there's no roadmap to success. And so I don't know much about the six day race, but with the first section, it's a 48 hour race. And 48 hours is where you can go pretty much the whole time without sleeping, but you start to go into crazy town at the end of it. And tell me about it. Yeah. So <laughs> live there. There is this woman who is racing uh, while I was out there and she was running the 48 hour race and she just ran even splits. And I don't think she stopped at all to go to the bathroom or to sleep or anything until well into the second day. I mean, it was just crazy to see her splits be super, super even and meticulous throughout the whole thing. Other people would stop early on in the 48 hour race, would stop, would walk, would hang out. And it's like a pretty casual thing. She was very, very serious and methodical. And so there are different ways of approaching it. And when you register for the race, uh, for the sixth day at least, you can uh, sign up to get a cot and a, a sleeping bag as part of <laughs> your uh, entry fee. Your care so package. you can sleep on, yeah, a little care package. So you can Maybe sleep you get on the wheels outside. in the cot because you can do anything. You could just use that <laughs> yeah. as a scooter. Yeah. Just use your arms to kind of propel you. <laughs> Swim around. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. so that's going on now, but, but your race, what happened in your race? How many, how many people were there and um, how did it go? Yeah, so it was pretty limited to a field from, I think, entirely the United States, maybe one or two people from Canada just because of travel restrictions, but there were not all that many people. So for the 48-hour race, that starts on Friday, but there's also a 24-hour race that starts at the same time. And... And then for me, I ran on Friday, and then actually for another guy on Saturday, all we were trying to do is run 100 miles as fast as possible, um, and both of us were going after the world record, which is, again, 11 hours and 14 minutes. So and how many people were on the track then, like, at once, when you were running? There were, yeah, so there were probably 35, 30 or 35 people that started on Friday at the same time as me. And then there were a few more people in the Saturday 24-hour race than in the Friday one. So I think there were probably more people on the track. But for the 48-hour race, like at the beginning, everybody starts. And then pretty quickly, people are taking breaks. People are taking naps, doing whatever, going to the bathroom. And so the track starts to feel emptier and emptier as the race goes on. Um, okay, so you're running. And there's maybe a... There's no cots at this point. There's just people. Oh, yeah. I did have a question. If you go to the bathroom, do you have to like mark where you leave the track and then like come back to that same exact spot? The, like the outhouses are right on the periphery of the They're track. So you, the you track. can just go in and come back out. Yeah. So the start of the race is at 9 a.m. And for me, my biggest worry, and I, I tried and practiced to emulate situations that would control my pacing. So... I did a, a workout before going out to Milwaukee and it was uh, two by two miles. And what I wanted to do was for the first mile or for the first quarter mile split of that two mile interval, I wanted to go out really, really fast. And then I wanted to slow down. And so I wanted to like train my brain to think that it was okay to back off the pace because I was worried that I would go out way too fast. So the track is about 443 meters which is, you know, more than 400 meters and four laps on a 400 meter track is about a mile. So they were oversized laps and my pace was about one minute and 51 seconds per lap for 100 miles. And so that comes out to about 645 per mile. And so my worry was that I was going to go out way too fast and 
because that's way below what I'm capable of running and what I usually run at. I was worried that I would go out too fast and just be like, oh, I'm feeling great. I should just keep going at this pace and then go too fast and then wind up blowing up. So I did the opposite where I started as really slow, comfortable pace. I was like, all right, the race is not going to be won or lost in the first four laps. So I went out at 158. I was also trying to use the first few laps as a calibration point. So I kind of figured that I would oscillate up and down around 150, 151, and then I would find my pace. And so I was 158 uh, for my first split. And then after that, I can actually, let me pull it up. Can our listeners see these if they are interested? Yeah, I can later. I can pull them up. Yeah, so I was 148 for my or 58 for my first split and then I was 145 for my second lap and then my third lap was 145 and it I was so hopped up on caffeine. <laughs> I had uh I was staying with my friend Scott Woodnorth who was my uh, he was my support crew for this and I was staying with him and uh, he and his dad made me the darkest coffeeest coffee that you could imagine and so i had some of that and i think it was probably the equivalent of three or four cups and i never drink coffee so I, oh my no heart is was this racing. coffee what does this coffee do to you oh uh, is this I mean, coffee to blame no 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 not at all the coffee is a it's a legal performance enhancing drug it should probably not be legal but it's legal i had a lot of it coursing through my veins so i was just ready to go and so it was really holding back on that first lap and then i kind of just let myself go and i ran 145 which was six seconds faster than I had hoped. And then the second lap, I, or third lap, I was 145 again. And so at that point, I was like, okay, 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 hold the horses. And I really had to pull back. And then I hit 150. And really from that point forward for probably the next few miles, I was putting on the brakes constantly. Like I found a pretty even rhythm and pretty soon I was running 150, 148, 150, 149, 150, 148, 149, and so on. And so I found this rhythm and I was like dialed into my pace, but I kept having to pull myself back because I was just feeling so good so early on. And you had um, like a thousand milligrams of caffeine. Coffee. I had a thousand milligrams of <laughs> jumping caffeine. through your system. Yeah. And we talked about the anticipatory model where your brain's really good at anticipating how much effort you need to give now to make you get successfully to a future point. And the more experience you have with a race, the better you're going to be at uh, starting off at a reasonable effort early on. Um, and that was definitely one of the things I knew going into this is that I've only ever run one 100 race before. And I was actually not racing the 100. I was trying to go farther. So I was totally inexperienced and didn't really know how reasonable it would be to keep up that pace but i planned on running it and i was going to hold it and then every 20 minutes i had my uh coach sam davis reach out onto the track and hand me a little ounce packet of maple syrup that either had salt or caffeine in it and so i was taking that every 20 22 minutes so about three ounces of syrup or 300 calories an hour and so i was doing that consistently and then i was also taking in maybe like four to six ounces of fluid every 20 to 35 minutes or so I needed less fluid. And the other thing that's sort of interesting is they give you, we talked about this in I think maybe the second episode of the season is that just having sugar in your mouth gives you this, the physiological stimulus as though you were digesting and processing sugar, even if you spit out the sugar, the sweet taste does enough. 
And your body has, like the average person has 25, 35,000 calories of fat on their body. So if you can metabolize the fat fast enough and efficiently enough, you really don't even need to take in calories. Uh, when you're running at a fast enough pace, you can't keep up with the caloric demand. So you do need to take in like cheaper energy sources. But if you're going slower, you could probably do these races without really fueling all that much. So did you have like, were you in communication with your coach? Did you have like little headphones or anything or like, or like flag, you know, semaphore signals or like, were you communicating with him? Yeah, we, we came up with a race plan before where I said, all right, I, I don't care. Cause one of the things you can get is this sort of nutritional fatigue where, or like a ta- like a palate fatigue, where if you're eating the same thing over and over again, you just get nauseous at the thought of cramming. I was going to eat about probably a quart, quart and a half if I made it the whole time of uh, maple syrup. And so that's like way, way, you know, that's gross. That's a lot. And your body starts to reject it. Like I noticed I was eating so much sweet. Uh, I went up, so spoiler alert, I only made it 50 miles at world record pace and then my body kind of gave out. And so I stopped at that point. But even at that point, I was already, it was too sweet. I, I needed, I was like starting to crave some saltier food, like a roasted potato with salt on it, or case mashed or potatoes, like that. Maybe. or mashed potatoes. Yeah, not plate yeah, of nachos. Exactly. Not a, yeah. So we had come up with a plan beforehand, and there was some flexibility built into it. But I, I told my coach, I was like, I, I, just hand it to me. I, I'm gonna force myself through that palate fatigue stage by just having it in just my hand, jamming and it down it my it. pie hole. Yeah. yeah, and one of the nice things about maple syrup, because I have used honey in the past and honey unless you keep it in a pocket and your body heat warms it up honey can be really viscous so the the race is at an indoor facility that's a like an olympic quality speed skating rink and so it's kept at 55 so it's nice and cool in there and so if you have honey it's really viscous but with the maple syrup it's really really fluid even at 55 degrees and so you can chug it really easily before you really know what you're doing <laughs> so that <laughs> that fatigue doesn't really set in yeah as it might for something you that gulp you have it down to like a pelican just like all and don't even like don't even touch your mouth basically yeah just bypass it yeah did you did you finish the race or are you one of those people that were like if i'm not going to beat the whole thing there's no point in finishing yeah that uh <laughs> i <laughs> The you know, <laughs> I think it makes sense, you know, for some people that want to have A, B, and C goals. And mm-hmm. I have never really understood that. Like, I, I set a goal, and that's everything that I do is geared towards doing that. And it was really hard. So I made it through about 42, 43 miles running really, really consistent splits. I had my slowest split was a 155 and that was at hour four when you have to turn around so you go around this cone and you have to accelerate again and i Uh, did that real gently um but otherwise everything was in that 148 to 151 pace you have to turn around so you're running the other way around the truck every every four hours hours you switch yeah and And the people on the 48 hour sometimes forget because they're hallucinating and they just like lumber on the same way and then people you probably they're kind of zombie-ish so you could just like I'll gently turn, turn them, them around. around and they wouldn't have any idea that anybody did anything yeah yeah You're good 42 miles oh yeah so so about 42 miles i was good through that point and then once i was going the other direction i pretty much knew at that point that my chances were zero 
And so I was like, all right, I was doing a fundraiser and people pledged per mile that I was going to be on pace to break the record. And so I was like, every mile that I go, I'm making more money for this awesome organization, Junior Milers, and or program that Run Vermont puts on. And so I was I was just like, that was my motivation. And I was like, I can get through 50 miles. And I was like, I'll get to that point and I'll just see if I'm capable of continuing to run. And my plan was I would get to 50 miles and then every... I would just run one more lap and I would just keep doing that until my pace slowed way off. What wound up happening is by the end, and this is mile like 170 or so, and or maybe a little bit before then, but I would run a 152, which was slower than my goal pace. And then as a compensation, I'd be like, okay, stay focused, Teague. Or I would get a little bolt of caffeine from the maple syrup that I was taking in. And then my next lap would be a 148. It was like a compensation. And then the next lap after that, I would slow back to like 153. And then I would try to speed up again. And I just noticed that there was this oscillation, constant oscillation throughout the race between, you know, my splits from lap to lap. But what was happening is they were getting slightly slower and slightly slower. And then pretty soon I was oscillating around like 151, then 153. And then it was just getting harder and harder. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we've talked about before, these new super spikes or clown shoes or cheater shoes or whatever you want to call them, that have this, they have, you know, 40 millimeters of padding on the shoes. And then they have this carbon fiber plate on the inside. And the biggest advantage that that offers, well, there are two advantages, but primarily around cushioning. So the impact during these races is minimal. And what people talk about is not only are they good for racing, but they're good for practice because you can do the same workouts that you'd be doing otherwise. But the next day you feel way better, way springier because it doesn't impact your body as intensely. And for me, I was doing this barefoot. The track surface is really, really thin rubber over concrete. I think I just hadn't put in enough time training on that and I was running this barefoot. And so by the end, the limiting factor, I think, was being barefoot and just the impact that that had on my feet and as a result on like my lower legs. Your bunions, maybe also your bunions. My bunions were really flaring up. So what, did everything hurt? Like, was it like your feet and legs? I mean, could you identify what was hurting the most or just like everything kind of hard and hurt? Yeah, it was like everything in my lower legs. My feet hurt a lot more the following day once everything else started to kind of recover and it was like a distracting injury. And then I realized just how much pounding my feet had taken. Do you, I mean, you're running a marathon every day when you're training. How often do you actually feel the the soreness every time? Uh, usually it's ju- just after, well, not anything like that. Usually it's long runs kind of simulate that sa- same thing because you're just running for so long. It's so much pounding and they're just a bunch of little micro tears in your muscles, which is what you want because then your muscles heal and, and get stronger. And so I feel that same sense of exhaustion after a longer run. And it's something I've definitely noticed. Like after I go for a long run, if I wear shoes, I feel a lot better after than if I go barefoot. So part of it was just like, you know, during my training, feeling tired is not a bad thing because you want your body to be breaking down, not to the point of fatigue or detrimental stuff, but you want it to be breaking down and getting stronger as a constant process. So I didn't mind. I never felt like I was in a red zone during training when I would feel that that tiredness afterwards. But 
Are you thinking yeah. of switching over to the clown shoes? And these are, I'm, I'm picturing them looking like actual big red clown shoes. Yeah, oh, they. I mean, they are bright. They don't They're seem like, like they'd be that great red. for running. Oh, not, not anymore, but the first model, the Vaporfly 4%. So yeah, and the, the nose, original maybe the honk, honk. Every time you want some maple syrup, you're like, honk. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I get it for professional runners where the shoes might mean the difference in getting a contract or not getting a contract or getting a contract that pays a livable wage or not. But for me, I'm not interested I'm interested in what my body can do and I'm not interested in putting technology on top of that and finding out that way. And I totally understand that an obvious easy thing is like, well, you know, you have all these other elements of technology running on an indoor track in an air conditioned environment with no wind. You're doing all these other things. And so you just draw arbitrary lines at some point. And for me, I was like, it just feels more interesting to me to not try and figure out what I could do in those shoes, but to be able to compare myself against my previous self without having that confounding factor. I did when I was trying to qualify for the Olympic trials, I wore those, um, the four percents and I felt really stupid after I was like, that was not that interesting because if I had run that time, there always would have been this asterisk next to it for me, which would have been, well, how fast could I have done that if I Mm. wasn't wearing a carbon fiber plate? And then for this, it was like, well, here's an easy opportunity to do it barefoot and see what could you do without shoes? Yeah. Can you? I mean, I still, you know, I'm, I'm happy. I A few weeks ago, I did a 50-mile time trial that wasn't all out, um, but I ran a 5.28 in that, and I ran 5.34 or so for my 50-mile split, and it felt really easy. I mean, I you know, I, I stopped because the thought of running a hundred miles, <laughs> uh, was not going to happen. And so I was like, all right, I'm done. My A goal was my goal. And I wasn't a, I probably wasn't capable of continuing on. It really felt, we talked so much about the mental side, but it really felt like I had just run up against a, a physical barrier. Yeah. And I couldn't actually go through that. Yeah. Um, so Wait, you did this before you ran 50 miles on a different track, were you saying? Is that, is yeah, that as a training saying? run, I went up to the local track and ran 50 miles uh, barefoot. Uh, and you ran actually faster than... So is it possible if you'd had a different track, are you... I mean, are you interested in trying it again later on a different track? Like, I might actually try it in a couple weeks, go run 50 miles all out, because I'm still in great shape, uh, and I didn't <laughs> exhaust myself on Friday. So I figured that 528, I can... I, I was going fast in that, but I wasn't going all out. And I think I could, you know, hold a much, much faster pace for that distance. So I might give it another go. We'll see. My wife is due in uh, three weeks. Oh, <laughs> so shoot. I don't, I don't know what <laughs> I'm going to squeeze God. that one in. Uh, so, yeah, that might not <laughs> well, happen. That's but. why you got to run extra fast. Yeah, yeah. Um. So uh, uh, Boss Baby here from Boss Baby Times, I have a question <laughs> What are some of your um like things like temperature, terrain, elevation? What are some things that might have differed between the times when you were doing twaining and when you were actually doing the waste that might have impacted your performance? Thank you. That's a very very precocious baby. I'm though. just a baby. <laughs> Do you have any bunions by chance? Oh, that's very funny. I go to a different specialist for my bunions. 
Yeah, I uh, they say train on the terrain you're gonna race on, and so yeah, my my training I did most of it on a track. You know, if uh, ideal conditions, if I love my family, but say in some alternate universe I didn't have a family, uh, you know, I'd probably train at altitude. Burn. Sick burn. And, uh, I train at altitude, and then I would also uh, do a lot more weightlifting and have more free time and get massages every day. Uh, I didn't have that, and I mean it's not that interesting, you know, like I like doing all the other things I do in my life. And, and so this is just something else that I'm trying to squeeze in. My training would have been essentially the same, but maybe with a couple of modifications. Well, so does this, I mean, because you did it barefoot, certainly that's some sort of a record. Yeah, no, I mean, nobody keeps barefoot records. Uh, oh. We could do yeah, it, but we could do it here. Yeah, I do it right now. Yeah. Just... yeah, I mean, but undoubtedly, I, I mean, I, yeah, I guess there is a 100K world record for barefoot that I, uh, have I mean I, I can't imagine I, nobody races the 50 miler really and definitely nobody does it barefoot so it's hard to imagine that it's not a world record yeah hmm. I had two questions well I don't have two questions we have some questions for the from the audience yeah go for um it. let's see this one is going to be from who's it going to be from Glenn from Sylvia Buttsnap no probably not that (laughs) i'm sylvia buttsnap and i've got some really important questions about recovery that's right or what things do you do to recover after a race (laughs) uh yeah i mean after something like this there's nothing you can really do be well actually being active really helps so uh going and walking around and just being physically active the mornings are always the worst and then by the end of the day it feels better i I just was mentally burnt out from my training cycle, so I didn't run the next day. But after the 50 miler I did in April, uh, I ran every day that week, and I found that it helped speed up my recovery a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's just super easy. Actually, the next day, I barely ate any food, and I I had a, a custard because I was in the Midwest. You just had a ton of deep fried cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you feel pretty crappy like this morning? You felt bad? physically um yeah this morning uh well this is a couple days later now i, f- I felt uh, today was great uh i can you know run again and feel just fine um and this is maybe three days after the race so uh yeah i could start training again i wouldn't want to just jump right back in a full-on training mode but uh i've got a 5k coming up i think in a couple weeks that i was thinking about jumping <laughs> is, in is that what you call your baby <laughs> yeah that's yeah, supposed to be boring <laughs> Little five name. Cute little five K. <laughs> if I get my way, yeah, it'll be five K. You could just spell it with like five K is in a row. Although I think yeah. actually putting that's, this case no, no, in a row that's is a dangerously bad idea. close to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We won't be doing that. I have a question here from a friend of mine. Hi. I'm a leprechaun. I was wondering uh, what kind of lucky takeaway do you have from this for our listeners? What kind of like lesson of life would you say you could pass on in case they want to find some gold at the end of your rainbow of running uh i guess one of the cool things for me is that i you know running such a i'm being so serious right now and that was so that's okay (laughs) no serious is good Sometimes um, one of the things that i've tried to do with running big things like this is i try not to have an ego about it but there is something like compelling i think in gripping about a going after world record but b also just running that far barefoot so it's an easy way of hooking people in and so much of my training is done by myself or just 
you know, with me going back and forth with my coach with something like this, it can, I love making it into some, uh, somewhat of a spectacle and involving a community. And so I did this fundraiser and I had, you know, total strangers that were donating to the campaign and it just felt really cool. And so while I was running it, I was thinking so much of the time about the other people that were invested in and curious about what I was doing. And so, so much of, what I do is answering my own questions and following my own curiosity. But so many of the people that I'm inspired by are people that I am able to witness them following their own curiosity. And so it's kind of cool to be on the other end of that and see people reaching out to me with questions and, you know, trying to figure out like what's in my headspace and why am I doing this and all of that. So it was cool to to be able to create an experience that was compelling for me in a very particular way, but that other people were also drawn to and, and felt some some connection to. And a lot of people were expressing like how unfathomable it, it was, but how interesting and, and curious they were about it. So, yeah. Anything else Thank possible. you. Not just people, you know, leprechauns. We were we were following ye. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a f- I have a question, but this question's for the leprechaun. Where are you from? I'm I'm by <laughs> I'm bicultural. <laughs> I'm partly from Ireland, and I'm and I'm partly from uh, upstate New York, Detroit. <laughs> Old timey newspaper here. I have one final question. Yeah. I'm a you know short time listener and a first time caller. So how's come when if you train really hard and you're this incredible runner and you can run a hundred miles, no problem, but then you hike up a mountain and you're like, how do you do hiking up a mountain, Teague? Is it easy? No, it's really hard. I'm sorry. We have a... Can you just pause? Because we have a Teague already that's available to answer the question. Yeah. Uh, no, it's actually not hard. I can hike any mountain. Um, I crush mountains with my mind. That's so good. All right, signing off. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming. No, T, you can answer the question. Yeah. No, that I like the macho version of myself much more. <laughs> um, I, yeah. In uh, Baron Heinrich's book. Uh, why we run he talks about how he knows when he's getting in really good ultra endurance shape because he has trouble walking upstairs that's incredible (laughs) Uh, yeah and it's you know it was interesting because there were so many people that were on the track that i I was passing and there were a couple of times where i I was coming up to someone and then i had to kind of like jag out of the way real quick you know and do a little side move and as soon as i did it it just like tweaked my muscles and i felt so much more tired after doing that than just running in a straight line and you know there not that that's the same as hiking but there's you know as you're going up and down there's a lot more impact when you're coming down but it's definitely more of like a anaerobic type strength engagement there's you know definitely an aerobic capacity to it but you get a lot worse at stuff like that the more that you're geared towards just straight endurance and but you know that said there are people that train specifically for doing ultra mountain races that are far better at it than than i am yeah i actually yeah i know somebody who does that and that the combination of long distance and up and down a mountain is uh kind of bonkers but 
Yeah. Is it does it go the other way around? Like if you're a really good mountain climber, you might not necessarily be a very good runner because are you talking about like are... rock climbing, mountain climber, or like a, no, just hiking, yeah, mountain goat uphill, yeah. Yeah, this is something that I I see all the time in like reading forums about running and stuff where, you know, people talk about uh, someone who's fast at marathons. It's like, oh, they wouldn't necessarily be fast at ultras or they wouldn't be good at mountain racing. And so there's a curiosity in the ultra world to see how fast these elite marathoners could go. And someone who's fast is going to be fast at everything, right? Like a fast marathoner is still going to be really fast at 10Ks and 1500s. They might not be right. as relatively competitive, but they're still going to be really freaking good. So a fast mar- marathoner is going to be good at mountain running, is going to be good at endur- like ultra uh, uh, track races and all that. Um, it, and they might not be as good relatively. And there are other things that you have to figure out the farther you start going like Elliot Kipchoge the world record holder in the marathon is not going to be competitive at a 24-hour run because it's at such a slower pace but he's probably going to be better than virtually everybody (laughs) you know he might not be the the best of the best but because there are other things to figure out that you don't have to figure out for a marathon yeah interesting because I um I'm one of those weird people where I'm actually not a very good runner, but I have what uh, they call in the soft sciences robot legs, which means I can pretty much <laughs> hike indefinitely. And yeah. I'm just wondering what's what's going on inside that body. Well, this, I mean, that's what's interesting about some, like you see these ultra marathons that, you know, a 24-hour, 48-hour race, or as you get into the six-day, the runner type, like the long-distance runner body type, does not really apply because it's a totally different skill set. That for me, that's why I like the hundred mile because the pace that I was running for that felt like a fast competitive race. When I tried to do a twenty four hour race, I was going out much much slower, and so it becomes a little bit more about willpower and not about your aerobic engine mm-hmm. when you start to do those longer events um, where your robot legs are going to serve you a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Mm. All right. Well, we got one last question. It's from the Whistle Cowboy again, and he wants to know, if you were made of mashed potatoes, would you eat yourself? Oh, you're darn right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and this has been <laughs> the Single Acorn Podcast. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I started at the top saying that this was a failure, and Don't... It, it was in definitely one sense where I had a very clear objective goal that I did not meet. Uh, that is not to say that I did not enjoy our time together talking about endurance. And uh, I I thoroughly love running and I could not train enough. Like I just, every free moment I had leading up to this, I was out running. And so it was a great experience from start to finish. And yeah, I probably learned some life lesson, but more than anything, I just, I enjoyed every moment of it. So yeah. I just am well, so happy for all, all the friends teeth. I met along the way. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds clap, like clap, a success clap, 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 to me. Clap, clap, clap. Oh my yeah, go <laughs> team! Gosh, yeah, everybody's signing you know, off. <laughs> I, I yeah, I was hoping you know part of the the hope is that in these you know ultra events you get into that runner's high or you get some sort of altered mind state and because i was planning on running for so much longer and i stopped halfway through it just felt like this abrupt kind of you know the plug just you know when we were recording my 
computer died it's like it's over you know and that was a little bit disappointing but but i hear when you unplug something and plug it back in it works better the second time around so let's do that race again but this time on a camel yeah great (laughs) all right well next season is all about camels (laughs) Mm -hmm. probably not we'll figure it out so thank you everybody for joining us in our uh trek down the halls of endurance physiology and yeah mentality and we'll see you next time on the single acorn bravo t bravo professor bravo bravo bravo. thanks everybody bravo (laughs) boss baby says bravo (laughs) oh okay yeah that was longer than 20 minutes i'm sorry t